at the ACCC, I was quite surprised when I arrived there in 2019 to discover that there was no money provided for this work from the administration of the court itself. And when I say for this work, I mean for the, for the logistics of, of going out to the provinces and meeting the civil parties or bringing them to Phnom Penh for meetings. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So earlier this year, the lawyer representing some of the victims at the Cambodia Tribunal resigned. She said that the court wasn't providing the funding she needed to communicate with her clients. So we thought we'd ask Megan Hirsch to the podcast to discuss all things ECCC and talk about the business of representing victims. Hi, Megan. Hi. Thanks for having me in. But before we go into Megan's whole professional background and, of course, ask her more about what happened, let's just set the scene for a bit. So we are going to talk about the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, or the ECCC, which is the Cambodia Tribunal, as we like to shorten it at Reuters. It's a UN-backed court set up specifically to deal with what happened in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge regime. Now, the Khmer Rouge killed nearly 2 million people through starvation, torture, and forced labor under uh, their leader Pol Pot in the 1970s while trying to turn Cambodia into a communist, centrally organized economy. The court itself started in 2006. Um, most importantly, it's hybrid. It's both Cambodian and an international tribunal. And it has cost more than $300 million. And it sentenced three defendants, torture centre leader, and here we go with the pronunciation, Ken Gek Yu, Comrade Doik, as he is known to, to most, and that was in 2010. Doik was convicted of overseeing the mass murder of at least 14,000 Cambodians at the notorious Tuol Sleng prison. He died in prison uh, himself in September 2020. Then we had former top Khmer Rouge leader Nguyen Che. He died protesting his guilty verdict in August 2019. Well, not actually while he was protesting, but while he... It was a bit of journalese, Stephanie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he had been convicted alongside Kyo Sampan in 2018 to life imprisonment for war crimes, genocide, torture, and other crimes. So that brings us to the case that we are discussing now. The Supreme Court Chamber is still has to make its decision. It's coming up later this month, September 22nd, on the final appeal by Kyo Sampan, the former Khmer Rouge head of state. His case is also known as Case 002-02. He's the last surviving Khmer Rouge leader, and as we said, he was also convicted in 2018 alongside Nguyen Chea for genocide, among other things, against Cambodia's Muslim, Chan and ethnic Vietnamese. Overall, there have been 3,865 victims registered, known as civil parties, represented by a team of 20 international and local lawyers. Uh, Megan is known as the International Civil Party Liege Co-Lawyer, in this civil party in the case 002-02, and she is the lead co-lawyer since 2019. Until she resigned. Now, Megan has also got this incredible interest and background in victims' representation, so we're going to be talking to her about 
victims' representation more generally. So at the International Criminal Court, the ICC, she's been representing victims in pre-trial proceedings in the trial concerning the Rohingya in Myanmar. She's also involved in the opening of the ICC investigation in Afghanistan. She also previously represented victims in the case against Dominic Ongwen from the LRA in northern Uganda. She also worked in-house for the ICC itself and for the Special Tribunal for Lebanon on victims' participation issues, in which capacity, quote-unquote, she undertook litigation and played a key role in the development of policies and legal frameworks. Now, maybe I've got some of the details in all of this wrong. This is all kind of just taken off the internet. So I'm sure Megan will correct us as we've gone on in case we've got any of the facts and figures wrong. But over to you, Stephanie, to start with the first question. Yes. Well, Megan, you resigned from your post as a lawyer for the victims in that last remaining ECCC case. You wrote in your letter of resignation, I find myself in an untenable position I'm asked to represent the civil parties, but I am unable to communicate with them. And you also said that the overwhelming majority of civil parties do not know what has occurred at the ECCC over the past few years or what will happen after the final judgment. So what has been going on in Cambodia? So, yeah, the untenable position I found myself in was that the task I was asked to undertake, in my understanding of it, was to be, together with my national counterpart, Pick Ang, the lead lawyer representing all the civil parties in case two. And for me, that's a question of representation. It's not standing up and speaking about the abstract views that victims might or might not have in the case, but it's really a proper role as a lawyer representing those clients. So what do you mean by that, Megan? I mean, what encompasses representation for you? Well, for me, it's it's a two-way process where you advise your clients and inform them about what's going on in the court proceedings. And then you go back to the court and you face the court with their views and represent their views and be their voice in the court proceedings. So it needs to go in both directions. And what's fundamental to that, obviously, I think is communication. And that's what was not happening in the last few years at the ECCC. And what you wrote in your letter is also that without resources to enable meetings between civil parties and their legal representatives, that you found that you were without those, and that you met up with just 5% of victims. You know, that seems such a ridiculously low number. How does that compare to your experience with the ICC uh, in the Ongwen in Myanmar cases? I think it's always very difficult when you have large numbers of victims participating. The number of victims participating in the Ongwen trial was around 4,000, um, very similar number to the civil parties participating in case two at the ECCC. I don't want to say that we managed to do a perfect job in the Ongwen case, but there was certainly continuous efforts being made throughout to go out to the communities and meet with them in different size groupings throughout the trial and I understand that's continuing now and that funding comes from the registry of the ICC so it's understood as a core part of the work of the victims lawyers during the trial process at least and that means that when you need to go and meet your clients you can always make a request to the registry often of course you're not happy as a lawyer at how much money the registry gives you for that work but at least there is an understanding that the funding comes from the court. Although I would say that it's a bit different in the Myanmar-Bangladesh um, situation and any other proceeding that's at 
pre-trial investigation stage or where the case is not proceeding to trial because there's no accused in custody, there we do we do have a very similar problem at the ICC that it's not funded and we're left to raise our own funds. So let's get into that nitty gritty before we move on. How much money were you given? How much were you asking for? What was going on? You know, you, you had to resign for a reason. Yeah, at the ACCC, I was quite surprised when I arrived there in 2019 to discover that there was no money provided for this work from the administration of the court itself. And when I say for this work, I mean for the, for the logistics of, of going out to the provinces and meeting the civil parties or bringing them to Phnom Penh for meetings. There was, of course, funding for my time and for the time of some limited number of team members. But as you mentioned, there's also actually a very large number of civil party lawyers working together in, in this system of representation. We have kind of a two-tier system of representation at the ECCC. So the civil parties have their own lawyers who they've chosen, who we call the civil party lawyers. And then there's kind of an umbrella structure on top of that, which was myself and Pik Ang coordinating and leading the representational efforts. Those civil party lawyers, the initial, the first tier, only three of them had any money paid for their salaries from the court. And so most of them are working pro bono, which means that they're not able to spend very much time on the case. And then the actual logistics of going out and arranging meetings, which is quite expensive when you're talking about nearly 4,000 people, that hasn't been funded at all by the court. So from the very beginning, there was a system where it was expected that lawyers for civil parties would go and either find that money themselves from external donors or do the work for free. Is that then one of the main problems with the ECCC, not in general? We heard for a long time that funding is missing. The government keeps kind of uh, changing its mind about the necessity of the court. Are there still donors interested in the court? Yeah, I think there's definitely a wider structural problem, I think, with the budget of the court has worked from the beginning, which is a voluntary contribution system. So the donors give their money that the court establishes its budget, but the UN side of the court, there's no, it's not like the ICTY where the money came out of the UN budget. The budget is established and then the administration of the court has to go around asking for donors to provide the money. And over time, there has definitely been a loss of interest and a diminishing amount of donor funding. So that is definitely part of the context. But then there's a second question, which is the money which is received by the court, how is it distributed? Um, and I think that's that's a second really significant problem. We don't have a proper system for accountability to ensure that that money is being distributed in an appropriate way. And there didn't seem to be an understanding from the administration of the court that communication between civil parties and their lawyers is really core judicial work, that you can't have civil party participation unless civil parties can talk to their lawyers. So that needs to be funded by the court. That's what surprised me because, you know, a story around the ECCC that says, yeah, difficulty with funding. Yeah, par for the course, because as you say, it's set up in a specific way where voluntary contributions were what were needed and there were regular kind of... Um, whist drives or, you know, rummage sales, essentially, to, to try and get some funding in from the court. But there was also this narrative around the ECCC that this was one of the courts where victims were really playing a role, where they really were being communicated with, where, you know, the stands, the numbers of people in the court were large. Um, maybe some of those were victims. Maybe they were also, you know, people just for a day out. But, you know, there's this sense that it really was working with 
the local population. So that's what shocked me, the idea that, that your work wouldn't be seen as core, that communication work. Yeah, it shocked me as well, really, because there definitely has been this narrative of the ECCC being very proud of itself as being at the forefront of victim participation and really presenting itself as having done a better job on that than the ICC. I think the picture in reality is a lot more complicated than that. I, I always see one way of simplifying what we do in victim participation is to divide it into the court-facing work and the victim-facing work. And I think in some respects, the ECCC has done a better job on the court-facing work. You know, the victim's lawyers have been given a much wider range of standing opportunities, much more procedural rights at some stages, particularly the investigation stage. We really are treated in the court proceedings as much closer to an equal party in terms of being able to be heard on some things. It's not without its limitations, though. For example, it was ruled very early at the court that civil parties could not make submissions on sentencing, which is a strange thing. So it's not an unqualified rosy picture on that front. But the other side of the picture is how much do you communicate with your clients? And for me, that's indispensable to actually call this representation. And that's the part where I think it's in the recent years really been a problem at the ECCC. Certainly in the earlier years, there was much more outreach activity and much more engagement. I don't know, we need to be careful not to conflate outreach with victim representation, but certainly in the earlier years, there was more, I think, communication between civil parties and their lawyers as well, when there was more donor interest and more funding for that. The other narrative that Stephanie touched on, the issue of uh, the Cambodian governmental support or not support for the court and the way that that's affected, which trials have gone ahead and and what has been agreed to by the judges, et cetera, et cetera. You've mentioned several times your co-Cambodian representative. Did that play a part with you or did you both agree together that uh, this was really needed? The hybrid structure definitely has an impact on your work in that respect because everything has to be agreed with your co, at least on our civil party side, it's different for the prosecutors. The international co-prosecutor has the power to make filings on her own, but I did not. So anything I filed was done with the full agreement of Pik Ang and we worked together on everything. So, and then I think people who can see our filings will see that the argument about civil parties needing to be involved as individual human beings whose rights are respected comes through in our filings. So yes, Pik Ang was very, is a very strong supporter of the right for civil parties to be heard. He was very strong throughout the litigation we had last year about the need to postpone the appeal hearing so that civil parties could safely attend despite the COVID situation. But yeah, I think throughout, like in the bigger picture, looking at the court, there is no doubt that the structure of the court and the fact that for the most part, decisions have to be taken jointly between nationals and internationals. What you're doing by creating a structure like that is introducing the lack of independence that exists in the Cambodian system into the tribunal. That is an unavoidable reality. It's something that people are very cautious about speaking openly about, but I think we can see from what happened in cases three and four that that's the reality. I was very fortunate that those factors are somewhat further in the background in case two, but they're certainly there. 
And now, you know, this was a hybrid tribunal, and hybrid tribunals are, some say, kind of the new future of international courts being touted as the solution for bringing justice closer to the people themselves while still having some international oversight. It's also been touted for uh, Ukraine aggression uh, tribunal. What do you think the takeaway experience should be on how you run a hybrid tribunal and their challenges from the ECCC now that you've like worked in it? There are so many, and I don't want to talk for an hour here, um, but maybe two key things. One is about time and funding. We seem to continuously repeat this problem that we set up these, because hybrid courts are necessarily not permanent institutions, or they always have been to date. And there's a tendency to set them up with, I think, what is an extremely unrealistic idea of how long the proceedings will require and how much money will be required. You know, to set up a court with a mandate of three years or six years is really setting yourself up to fail and opening everything up to criticism when it's not finished in that time limit. We should all know by now, after so many years of doing this, that that's going to be impossible. And the other side of that is the funding. You know, I think we need to have realistic funding structures, avoiding this voluntary contribution model, but also being realistic from the beginning about how much this costs. The cost of the ECCC is thrown around a lot, this $300 million figure. For me, that's very cheap for an international tribunal. And I think that's kind of the issue. How much do we expect a court to cost? And people don't really have a benchmark in their minds for that. So $300 million sounds like a lot, but, you know, maybe it costs $300 million to do a large infrastructure project, but people don't criticise that as a lot of money. I think we need to be realistic that that's what this costs. The other real question in my mind about hybrid tribunals is whether we're fooling ourselves with this idea that creating a mixture between national and UN actors actually makes things work better. I think someone needs to take a, a serious look at what happens in reality behind the scenes in terms of the sharing of the work between the national and international sides. My experience in all the hybrid courts I've been involved in is that things tend to be very dominated by the international side and there's really a danger that the national component can be window dressing. Of course, it varies from team to team, and I was very fortunate with the national colleagues that I had, but it isn't always that way. And then this idea that bringing the United Nations in improves things and creates accountability and best practice. I'm extremely sceptical about this. We have more and more information coming out about the way that the UN itself operates in an extremely unaccountable fashion. My experience was not that the UN component of the court brought any influence towards the independence of the lawyers appearing before the court or any effort to increase transparency. So I worry about this idea that we have that the international actors make things better in every respect. I think we need to look behind those assumptions a little more. Let's bring it back to um, victim participation. I remember when the ECCC was uh, started and there was this very strong emphasis on how victims would participate. Uh, if you kind of quote from the website that they have this formal role in the proceedings and that they can ask the court for collective and moral reparations. I don't know whether you feel that you got far enough with your representation to, to answer this, but how do you think that the victims in the case that you were working with were feeling about it? The few that you did manage to meet, did they feel represented? Were they prepared to go and talk to the court and to say what they wanted? 
part of the reason I was so frustrated by this inability to communicate with the victims just on a personal level and kind of aside from my professional obligations is that when you go and meet with the civil parties, you are really reaffirmed in what you're doing almost every time because when you do manage to speak with them, you see this real engagement with the court. I don't want to say that everyone is 100% supportive of the court. The civil parties are individuals and have different views, but there is a real enthusiasm for being a part of the process and for being heard a feedback from a lot of civil parties which i think is reflected in the in the studies which have been done by some academics on this that a lot of civil parties do feel that the ability to participate in the proceedings has been satisfying for them has i heard civil parties talking about some relief relief to some extent from the levels of suffering they experience so i think that when it works well and when there is communication and engagement the civil parties find it to be a very positive experience um, for the most part. What do you think of victims' participation in trials? Some see it really as that the role should be a kind of extra prosecutor to control. Well, I the... think that's the critique. That's of, the critique. Of a, yeah. that, that they see it as an extra prosecutor and others say that it doesn't work well enough because the victims are just on one side. I don't know how you see it, Steph. Or maybe we should ask the expert. Yeah, let's ask the expert. You know, for me, the essence of what we're trying to do is to give agency to the victims so that they have a voice and they are heard and they have the potential to have some impact on the process. And that's where I see the real benefit coming from. Now, how that plays out in the courtroom in terms of whether it's a problem for the defence because we have a second prosecutor in the courtroom, that's a debate which we seem to have a lot. In my experience, that's not the main problem that happens. I don't see equality of arms as being a numerical calculation in this way. If you have a trial involving three defendants, it's not necessarily easier for the defence than it is when there's one. And I think you can see very clearly at the ICC that one of the biggest objectives to victim participation has been the prosecution itself. I think for very good reasons that the prosecution feels as though they lose control over the process. They don't necessarily trust the victims to have the same strategy as them. And I also think fundamentally, when you're doing your job well as a victim's lawyer, one thing you should be doing is holding the prosecution to account and making sure that the prosecution is doing its job well in the interests of your clients. Because the prosecution has other interests other than the interests of the victims. They're thinking about their other cases. They're thinking about consistent strategy. They're thinking about the public interest. So we are not necessarily always playing on the same team as the prosecution. That's really important for me. To the extent that we can be, and at the ECCC we had pretty good cooperation with the prosecution, then I think it really falls on the chamber to make sure that that doesn't become a disadvantage to the defence. I can see the circumstances in which it can become unfair to the defence, certainly, um, and I think that's just something that has to be managed by the chamber. You know, whether we're getting there yet to this place where victim participation is working, yeah, I think like everything in international criminal law, there's a lot about it which is frustrating and not yet perfect. Uh, but I can also, especially at the ICC, see there are some areas where things are improving. Do you see the same issues uh, as you see at the EEC being played out at the ICC? Or is there some differences where you see the ICC maybe doing differently or slightly improving? Yeah, I think the ICC started off 
things were very limited in the beginning and it was a very cautious approach. And I think maybe that's what's led people to this idea that the ECCC is something of a paradise for a victim's participation compared with the ICC. And I heard that rhetoric quite a lot at the ECCC. My own experience, having worked in both courts, is that actually the system is extremely similar and you get maybe more variation between different chambers of the same court than you get between the courts overall. So as I said, you, you might say that at the ECCC there's more room for different types of standing for lawyers in the courtroom, but I think that also varies between the different chambers of the ICC and the different chambers of the ECCC. So no, I think the problems are very similar. I think mm -hmm. at the ICC um, there has been some really significant progress since Labunga and Katunga in terms of the possibility for victims' lawyers to be heard in the proceedings, to access the confidential case file, to lead evidence. At the ECCC, there was much more scope to lead evidence. Many more civil parties were presented. But I hope that we're slowly moving in that direction at the ICC, although, you know, in the Afghanistan situation, we've had some terrible setbacks in terms of recognition of victims standing at the investigation stage. So the struggle definitely continues. One thing I was really surprised to read about on the ECCC website is the idea that victim participation actually contributes to national reconciliation. I don't know. I can remember this being sort of touted around, even without victims' participation, around the Yugoslav tribunal. And I don't think anybody says that really anymore. What do you think, Megan? I mean, whether it helps or not, I mean, is that what victims' participation is meant to be there for? Yeah, I'm, I'm equally sceptical, I think. I don't tend to think it's helpful for international criminal institutions to make these grandiose claims, which are unsubstantiated by any kind of theory or empirical evidence. So I would be very reluctant to make the claim that victim participation generally can or should contribute to national reconciliation. I think it's very context specific. Um, you know, I don't even necessarily think we're agreed on what reconciliation means in the context of Cambodia. Uh, you know, I think victim participation is an opportunity for amplifying victims' voices helping societies perhaps see the victims in a different light, maybe it can contribute to creating empathy. But of course, that depends a lot on how it's presented. And I don't think that we should be blind to the possibility that we can also create divisions and rivalries where we have limited prosecutions and, and only some victims are given a voice that others aren't. So I think the impact has to vary massively depending on the context and how it's implemented. So I certainly wouldn't be making claims about national reconciliation myself, not without, you know, I think that's really a question for social scientists to investigate in a given context. And maybe I share your scepticism, Stephanie, about whether this is even what these courts are intended to do. Are they the best mechanism for achieving that? I remain unconvinced about that. I am also looking at a lot of uh, Ukraine stuff where that's also coming up that this is then the best way to do it is to create a historical truth about what happened. And then I'm thinking, have you looked at the former Yugoslavia? <laughs> Tremendous divisions and then the, the difficulty of doing it. In Cambodia, we also, you know, what we're doing is a very selective project. We're looking at this period, which is about three years and eight months long. It's a tiny slice of Cambodian history. And in a way, what the court does is it really continues the focus on that period of Cambodian history, almost to the exclusion of everything else. And, and I'm not sure whether that's the proper basis for a discussion about national reconciliation or, you know, never again, this kind of big picture ambitions that some people speak about for international criminal law.
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, Megan, for joining us on what is, um, I don't know, quite a negative reason for inviting you on. I'm sure we should have had you on earlier for other reasons, but uh, thanks for coming on to discuss ECCC and victims' representation. We always ask a few asymmetrical haircuts questions at the end, and the first one is, is there anything that we should have asked you that we didn't that you want to talk about now? I think in the context of the ECCC, one thing that's really important to me is the question of what still needs to be done and what's going to happen next, because I know it it looks like a negative move, the resignation, but I really do want the tribunal to take this opportunity of the remaining time that it has to fix this problem and, and to end on a good note for the civil parties. And I think the possibility is still there. There is a three-year residual period which has been agreed following the final judgment which will come in September. And I think, you know, there's a couple of really important things that need to happen for civil parties during that time. One is they absolutely all need to be contacted again to be informed about what happened in the judgment, to explain about the winding down of the process and to give them some, some recognition and some thanks for the part that they played in the process. So that's one thing. And then the other thing which is really important and I think not talked about enough is the question about what's going to be made public from the archives of the case file. The case file involves a huge number, thousands of documents which were submitted by civil parties. They're currently mostly confidential. And there's a big question about the creation of an archive, which will be an important legacy for the court if we're thinking about changing national attitudes and educating people about history. But a lot of those documents contain, in some parts, very personal information that people contributed about sexual violence, about their forced marriages, accusations against other people in their communities. We did an important filing in December last year calling on the chamber to recognise that this process needs to involve going back to civil parties and asking them on an individual basis whether they consent to that information being made public or whether some of it needs to be redacted. There are some signs for concern about whether the money is going to be made available to engage in a process on that level of individuality. But I think that's something that needs to be taken really seriously. And it comes back to this problem of the fact that there's a lot of enthusiasm and money at the start of a court, and then you get to the end And it seems as though the things that are left to do are treated as though they're not very important. But actually, I think that these things, informing the victims, reviewing the case file to assess confidentiality, you know, they're some of the most important things that will be done in terms of the legacy and what's left for the court. You know, we we can do this wonderful process for ourselves or we can put some extra money in at the end and make it something which is accessible and meaningful to people in Cambodia and also respects the privacy of the civil parties. So there really does need to be proper respect given for the importance of this final stage. And you sound like you're still really involved in this, and I know you've resigned. So how are you keeping an eye on this? Are you kind of doing this out of your own pocket and still looking at what's going on? I'm not directly involved anymore. I saw the announcement came through yesterday that a new international civil party lead co-lawyer has been appointed. I'm still in contact with my former team, the few members that are left in it on the national side and offering my support always. But the national side is continuing their work and I'll do whatever I can to you know, facilitate the transition and, and provide whatever institutional memory I can to the woman who comes in to replace me. But yeah, that is also a big challenge because the case is so enormous. And I know that the only way that I was able to get on my feet was that there was a team member there who'd been there for a very long time already, who was really the backbone 
um, of my team there and not having that kind of handover. You know, that's the other problem at this stage. There's such a, a loss of key human resources that have the institutional memory of a case that's been going on for more than 10 years. It's quite difficult for new people to get on board. Sounds all very familiar. Our other main question that we ask for asymmetrical haircuts is, are there any court cases that are a favourite of yours that you would like to tell us why that's one of your favourites? That's a difficult one. I think from recent times since I've been working on victim participation, the favourite case I had was the Ongwen case, really, mostly just for the fact that the Uganda proceedings were the first situation that I worked on when I joined the ICC as a staff member in 2009. And I did a few trips to northern Uganda and found it just so heartbreaking that proceedings weren't moving and it really seemed as though there was this terrible pessimism that we would never actually have a member of the LRA in custody. I really believed that. So I think the thing that sticks in my mind the most from the Ongwen case is the moment of maybe joy is the wrong way to describe someone being arrested for international crimes, but really it felt like a miracle um, at that time that things had turned around so much. And I I guess that sort of thing is, that's the thing that can keep you going and can give you a, a story of hope to share with your clients when it seems as though nothing's going to proceed, which is very often the case. So it, it was then a privilege to be able to work on that case, which is still ongoing. And then we always have our final question, which is what are you watching, reading, listening to that you can recommend to our listeners? It can be something that is to do with victims representation or the thing you're interested in legally. It could also be the thing that you put on to not think about all the horrible international crimes you're dealing with on a daily basis. (laughs) I've actually been reading a book which I stumbled upon without really thinking of it as a as a novel related to international criminal law and picked it up in WH Smith at the airport one day, which is a book, um, probably it's a classic, but I wasn't aware of it. It's called Alone in Berlin by Hans Falada. Um, and it's about people resisting the Nazi occupation. It's written soon after the war. I, I wasn't aware of it. I didn't really know what to expect and kind of picked it up thinking that I just needed something to read. And it's been, just been really interesting as a story of normal people dealing with authoritarianism and the different ways in which different people react, whether they resist, whether they join in, whether they find some path in the middle and how they then reflect on their own decisions. And I think for us working in this area, it's sometimes the case that you get very into the macro level of what happens in these sorts of historical contexts. And yeah, this is interesting just to take things back to the the human level and to think about the psychology of of what makes people make their decisions and how they reflect on those decisions after they've made them. So I've quite enjoyed that. Although it's, yeah, it's also slightly grim and not really much of an escape from work in that respect. Great. I think that's a great choice. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you so much for making the time to, to have a chat to us. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.